Wonderful. So, Rod, welcome to the Light Through the Shadows podcast. It's delightful to have you on here. Thank you. It's a delight to be here, Jonathan. Light Through the Shadows. I really like that. Thank you. Thank you. It came from a, I don't know, a spark of inspiration for one second. (laughs) It's kind of like where I am and where my business is at the minute with my life. So um, thank you very much, Rod, for coming on to this podcast and this video recording as well. Um, before we get into it, I'll just for people that aren't familiar with Rod or his work, um, Rod is an experienced counsellor, life coach, group facilitator. He works in Froome in Somerset with individual clients, mixed gender workshops, and also runs men's workshops as well. So just a, a simple introduction to Rod there. But Rod, um, beyond that sentence or paragraph of if we can at all give a synopsis to a lifetime of work. <laughs> Maybe if, you, if, if you'd like to expand on that, Rod, Rod, tell me about your work. Like what's, what's happened? Where are you? What's going yeah. on with work for you? Be delighted to. It all stemmed from the classic midlife crisis. So what does that mean? Well, I think what that means is that there are periods of natural change in life that are somehow part of the human condition. And if you think about it, that makes complete sense. There's the change from childhood to adolescence, the adolescence to adulthood, young adulthood to mature adulthood and into eldership and so on. So my crisis was between, I suppose, going out in the world, making a mark, being a warrior, to put it in archetypal terms, getting things done, and that sense of slowing down into something um, beyond 40, actually, because that midlife crisis can happen to men between 40 and 50. Um, And I just couldn't cope with what was on my plate, redundancy, a very unsatisfactory job that didn't suit me at all. I used to be an accountant, of all things. No disrespect to accountancy. <laughs> this is simply horses for courses, that's all. Yeah. Um, and the resulting stress, uh, the threat of redundancy too, is what I think um, prompted the whole thing into a crisis. The resulting stress made me go down with an illness that was never diagnosed, but was pretty serious, some viral infection. And it gave me a lot of time to consider what I was doing. In the end, I took redundancy with no idea what I was going to do, because that was like a huge relief in the moment, the relief of moving out of that corporate job into some of my own space was just more important than anything. Then I realized that I needed some therapy. So I went off to get that with the Manchester Institute for Psychotherapy. And within six months, I was so deeply immersed in the world of therapy and how fascinating it was. But I started their training course. That was in um, 1999. And since then, I've taken various other trainings in the world of psychotherapy. And the one that has fascinated me most is shadow work, which has become my career um, and has served me very well in terms of personal fulfillment, in terms of my ability to help other people and in terms of the results that I see, shadow work is just an amazing discipline. And at one point I was prompted to write a book, which some of your listeners might have heard of, around the archetypes, just because I wanted to bring this to a wider audience in this powerful, 
powerful tool of personal change that's, in my view, by far the most effective and by far the quickest route to becoming the person you want to be and finding what it is that you really want to do in life. Mm, thank you. It's a, uh, a deep answer. Thank you, Rod. Yeah, and I know. I, I've. I think I've mentioned it to many people. I've worked with Rod for probably over two years now mm. um, as a therapist, coach, counselor, guide in all those terms. Really, Rod. I think yeah. you you fit, you fit across the spectrum here. Um, and I know it's one of the things I've, I've called this podcast the lights through the shadows is uh, shadow work I find it particularly interesting um, insightful and powerful myself uh, although I still say even at maybe practicing if you can call shadow work practicing at two years I still consider myself a novice mm. rod so someone who's got the, the breadth of experience that you do over maybe many years of experience could you explain that's one I'll compound the question what shadow work is and how it's helped you in particular and your own development yeah, thank you. Well, the basic idea of the shadow is a pretty straightforward one. I mean, you're born into a world which hopefully receives you with a, a warm, embracing, wholesome welcome with good attachment. And of course, we all know that's not how it is for a lot of people. And there are different degrees of acceptance and welcome into the world when you're born. But one thing's for certain, there'll be a point, and it won't be long into your life where your nature who you are as an individual does not suit the people who are looking after you for one reason or another so you may be for example you're too feisty you're too energetic you're too loud or you're too quiet or you're not hardworking enough or you're a daydreamer or you're angry or you're sad or you're something that your carers don't like and will attempt in one way or another to suppress. And unfortunately, the extreme of that is they just don't like you, full stop. So there's a point in your life where something about you doesn't suit the people who are caring for you. And their attempt is to mold you into the person they want you to be, consciously or unconsciously. And of course, that's not a universal statement of truth. I mean, a lot of people have very good attachment with their parents, but a lot of people don't, sadly seems to be something in the human condition. The point being that every single thing that you possess as a quality or attribute that your carers don't like, you'll get a message that it's not wanted. And because the caring of the parents or adults who are looking after you is literally life-saving, your life depends on their care, children will put into shadow that's to say, out of their conscious awareness, those traits and attributes that the parents or the carers don't like. So I have a friend who's Catholic and he used to go home, perhaps he'd had a bad day at school and he'd be very angry with somebody or something and his mother would say, don't bring your anger in here. Take it outside into the street. If you bring it in this house, I'll slap you. <laughs> so he put his anger away, became a nice boy, a very pleasant boy but lost something in the process. Um, his brother, by contrast, he tells me, came home and used to cry. And his mother used to go, don't bring your sadness in here. Don't bring your tears in here. We don't want that round here. If you, if you carry on crying, I'll give you something to cry about, which is another slap across the head. Now these horrible unkindnesses 
are probably unconscious on the part of the people who are doing it, but they have profound effects on the child. So my friend put away his anger, became a nice boy, and his brother put away his sadness and became a stoic, no emotion here, thank you very much. Mm -hmm. The question is, where do these things go? They go into the unconscious, they're repressed, it's a defense mechanism. So they can be put out of mind, and it's a case of out of mind, out of sight, really. But the problem with that very human mechanism is that these things don't go away. In fact, Robert Bly, who was one of the first men to kind of formulate the men's movement and the idea of kind of personal development for men, said that what you put into the unconscious, in other words, he used the word shadow, de-evolves towards barbarism, which means that many years later, when you look at it, it's changed into something totally different. So for example, just to give two quick examples, my friend's brother put away his sadness. Maybe that evolved into that stoic, I don't need anybody, I don't want anybody, but actually somewhere in his unconscious mind, in his shadow, is this huge reservoir of grief causing him sadness and misery and unhappiness, the inability to see things in a positive light. And of course, my friend who put away his anger as a child has spent his adult life trying to find it, recover it. But the way he first discovered it was when it burst out in attacks of rage that were uncontrollable and the, the product of decades of sitting out of sight, out of mind. You know, his, his anger had de-evolved into rage. So shadow work is about taking those things out of the bag and reclaiming them. The bag, I didn't explain that. Robert Bly referred to it as a shadow bag. You mm. stuff everything in this bag, which hangs about over your shoulder, and it gets heavier and heavier as you go through life and you put more and more things into it. Um, but the idea of shadow work is to take the things out of the bag quite consciously, to reclaim them, to reincorporate them into who you are, so that actually you can once again be the person you were born to be, rather than something that the world made you. So if you reclaim your anger, you reclaim it in a healthy way, so it gives you vitality and power and strength and courage and the ability to get things done. If you reclaim your sadness, your grief, it gives you the ability to cry appropriately, to mourn the passing and losses that everybody experiences. And so it goes that you become this full rounded personality that you had when you were born, but somebody or something took away from you. Now, that's a long explanation of what's really quite a simple idea. I'm just wondering whether that made complete sense to you, Jonathan. Yeah, a lot of sense, actually. It's. Um... I also think reclaiming lost parts is probably the word or the phrase that stood out for me most at all. And um, wherever we were in our journeys, childhood, adolescence, or anywhere, even in our 20s, where we could put stuff into the bag that we did not want to look at or didn't match our ego ideal, mm. that's that's where it stays. But there was an interesting, to delve deeper into that, Rod, you say, you know, to, let's say, you, in my words, you reclaim the gold or you reclaim these lost qualities. How do you help? men and your clients reclaim these lost properties what's what's your your sphere of work here yeah well thank you for asking um there are many different techniques and different approaches 
usually it's a matter of putting people into contact with what they've lost in some way. Now, how do you do that? Well, the interesting thing is that many of these lost in inverted commas qualities are actually really quite near the surface. They're not really, we talk about the shadow bag and the unconscious mind and repression. These energies are not really that far from the surface. Um, and you can see that in things like road rage and inappropriate outbursts of rage and, mm -hmm. and other qualities, neediness and addictions and spiritual, um, a kind of life that's lived on an entirely spiritual basis rather than kind of worldly basis. So the key to getting shadow work underway is finding the key to the door and opening that door and finding what lies behind it. So often people come into shadow work when they've had some kind of life crisis, a bit like my midlife crisis, I'd call it a breakdown, I suppose, in retrospect, where it becomes clear that something has to happen. So for example, people might come along and say, you know, I've had this up and down relationship with my husband, wife, children, whatever, for years now, I'm fed up of it because it's too much. So there's your entry point. That's the key to the door. Set up a situation that mirrors their relationship. And within minutes, you can have somebody right into the emotion of that experience, including the emotion that's been repressed. So it's like literally opening the door. Um, you know, so if somebody came to me with, um, let's say, road rage, my wife tells me I'm an angry person. Well, I bloody well told her I'm not. How dare she say such a thing? Then, oh. of course, you've got an entree straight away because you can set that situation up in some kind of representational way and guide the person through a wholesome and full embodiment of that rage so that they can reincorporate it into themselves. Now that sounds very easy and simple and quick, and I'm not pretending that one session will transform somebody's repressed emotion into something that's incorporated into them. Maybe it's something you have to do several times. Maybe it's something you have to do many times, over and over again, perhaps. But the point is that every time you do something, that person can incorporate a bit more of that repressed emotion back into their whole self. And the more that they, reclaim it the more natural a personality they will be so that for example anger flows freely and quickly it's a clean emotion it doesn't hurt people it just expresses a point of view gets something to, to happen gets something done in the world sadness may be longer lasting but again flows through somebody and then it may repeat itself but then it's done it doesn't hang around and change somebody's entire behavioral way of being in the world with addictions and sadness and grief and misery and neediness and all the other consequences that mm. it may do when it's repressed into shadow. Mm. Okay, thank you, Rod, yeah. I'm sure I haven't been experienced Rod's work and my own healing from this as well. Um, I wouldn't say, for, in my own experience, it was a quick, experience but having repressed many things for decades it certainly it wasn't an overnight thing but certainly something I was willing to work for with Rod and uh, other people and apparatus and modalities I worked with as well over the time but um, so, sorry to interrupt you just no, 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 hold, hold that thought for a second 
because what you hit on there um, was, I think, really, really important. The recovery of yourself and the growth along the path to being the person you're always meant to be is not just a one-off event. And it's not even necessarily a series of events of the same thing. What I've come to believe over the years, Jonathan, is that the more things you do in as many different ways as possible, the more you easily you will recover yourself because the variety of experience takes different aspects of yourself out of shadow and puts it back together. So for me, it wasn't just about shadow work and therapy. It was about things like vision quests and trekking in the mountains and solo retreats in the wilderness and, and so on, all of which contribute to the end result. Mm, thank you, very interesting. It'll be interesting. Um, in terms of kind of other, maybe getting on some more personal terms, maybe, maybe a little bit premature, but it'd be nice to, what other kind of modalities do you work with? Well, you mentioned shamanic and solo walking there. What's What's been like maybe the top one or top two key modalities apart from your shadow work that you've worked um, with? Well, I, I was fortunate enough to train in transactional analysis, which is a wonderful type of therapy. It's not quite got the same level of popularity that it has, that it had then now, I think. But I also took a training in relational psychodynamic therapy, if that makes sense to people listening. Um, and I, one of the reasons that I think I have achieved some successes in the work I do is because of that combination of different techniques. But here's the thing, Jonathan, At the end of the day, there's loads of research, as many of your listeners will know, that demonstrates beyond doubt that the biggest single factor in the effectiveness of any kind of therapy is the relationship between the therapist and the client, whatever therapist means in this context. That's proven beyond doubt. But the interesting thing is that even though it's the biggest single factor, still only about 35% of the outcome, successful outcome of therapy is attributable to it, which leaves you think, leaves me thinking, well, what are the, what's the rest? And the answer is, Second biggest is the type of therapy. And I, I can imagine that, you know, the old classic ultra psychoanalytical therapist sits behind the patient, note the word patient, who lies on a couch <laughs> facing in the opposite direction and never says a word. I can imagine that's got a pretty low success rate, but I may mm. be wrong, I've never investigated it. But the, you know, that's, so first relation, two, hypotherapy, and third, a whole variety of factors that are entirely dependent on the character of the client, like their motivation, their interest, their experience, and so on. So what am I saying? I'm saying that, you know, to be successful, whatever you do, whatever technique you use, you need to be somebody able to build relation with relationships with the client. Um, and form that safe container where people can actually delve into their own psyche. Um, so for me, that was shadow work and it was classical, um, what I'd call relational therapy. Okay, thank you, Rob. I guess given your, I guess, I guess almost two decades worth of experience now as a therapist, coach, shadow worker, what does the work mean to you now? Um, well, I, it's... I've come to see it, rightly or wrongly, as the only hope 
that we have for the future. Excuse me, there was a book, in fact, it's on my shelves there waiting to be read. It's been there for about three years waiting to be read. <laughs> Books often seem to. Uh, it's called, We've Had 100 Years of Psychotherapy and the World is Getting Worse. Um, and I think that's evidently true, but I'm not sure there's a direct link between 100 years of therapy and the world getting worse. <laughs> but what I do think is that ultimately people taking responsibility, people taking responsibility for their own lives at a local level is the only thing that's going to save us from whatever lies ahead. So let me be more specific. In particular, instead of people projecting their own power outwards onto right-wing populist leaders, who we've seen quite a lot of in the world recently, they need to take that, it's a big statement, I believe they need to take that power back for themselves and become responsible in running their own lives at a local level. Yeah, I'd have to concur with you, Rod. I mean, it wasn't so heavily into politics many years ago. You know, I knew quite a bit. I studied politics for A-level. This is 20 years ago. And a lot of people talk about the political situation as they're waiting for emancipation of the UK, the world. And I've been around for 40 years. Rod, you've been around for a bit longer. I've not seen any huge dramatic changes from the political sphere. Absolutely. And I, th and I think um, it's a word I'll bring up now, Rod. Maybe you can speak into it. Individuation. How can we help ourselves become more individual, more whole, uh, more ourselves and more authentic? And I think, for me, the societal problems and the political problems, they're, they're kind of large, large spheres, but maybe it's difficult to influence. But the thing we can influence is ourselves. I could not agree more. I absolutely could not agree more. And the tragedy is that people choose not to or don't know that they can. Who knows? why people don't take responsibility for their own lives. I guess because at the end of the day, it requires work and sometimes quite hard work. But, and perhaps also there's a fear there that it's distressing to look into your own shadow and, and find what lies in there. But then if you are going to take responsibility for your own life and fully become the person that you were meant to be, how, what other opportunity is there? What other possibility is there of doing that work? Um, and on a local level, even if that's just at the level of the family, surely that matters. Surely that matters. Mm. Yeah, I think so. Even if, yeah, even if you could just see changes within your family or every day, the mundanity of every day, yeah. which, I, which is where the work is really done, really. That's where most people spend their life, I think. It's the yeah. mundanity, the retinue of day-to-day -day life. Yeah. But it can be done so differently, Jonathan. You know, in the archetypal model where we're splitting the personality into these broad qualities of sovereign leader, if you prefer the term, heart-centered leader, hopefully. Warrior, action taker, gets things done in the world. Um, lover, a kind of soft, gentler, kind of emo more emotional part of the personality. And the kind of magician, the thinker. You know, it's a good model. It gives us another entry point to look at people's shadow. But if in that model, which I've used consistently and I think is a great model for understanding human motivation and personality, that's the sovereign, the leader, the heart-centered leader who can just take responsibility, make decisions, carry out plans for the benefit of everybody 
that he or she is responsible for. That's the part of the human psyche that seems to be just weakening as time goes by, not getting stronger. Um, I don't really fully understand why that is, but I think there's definitely a kind of seduction in technology, there's a seduction in entertainment, there's a seduction in drugs and drink and so on. But those might be symptoms of an outcome rather than symptoms of a cause. I'm not sure. What do you think? Why is this decline in personal responsibility um, and this projection of power onto political leaders so marked in the world? That's a good question. Thank you, Rod. I think there's so much distraction in modern life and maybe this has been orchestrated by powers that be or maybe this is a natural evolution of our western civilization but i think people are too distracted really yeah. i think people have been taken away especially men stuff like free porn everywhere that's been available for 25 years yeah. taking away men's natural life force that's, that's one element of it as well mm. i think i don't know if it's me this is another claim statement it seems the world is more competitive or at least we're being made to mm. see that resources are more scarce um, this is this overriding competition. It's almost like this fight for the top, this striving this to get to the top, that people become so distracted by this chase, this power hungry, this, this chase for money, that perhaps in terms of self-actualizing themselves or individuating or doing the work, that seems it's not really important for them at the minute. Mm. Um, and to look for more shamanic examples, I don't know if, if, if listeners... Uh, have read or seen the book Watiko explains it's a shamanic term looking at the idea of a mind virus that's been in humans for a long time and it's a selfishness a kind of yeah. a selfish gene that's it's growing the infection as we speak and I feel having done my work and doing some work and doing some work removing that selfishness in terms of what I'm doing how I'm helping the world um, how I'm helping myself how I want to help the world more than help myself yeah a few theories put me a bit on the spot there rod but that I probably involves a longer conversation definitely. well i'm sure it does but i think you really hit on something really really important and that well two things actually first of all to me it's quite obvious that capitalism as a system does not promote community mutual care and i think in the end is quite is proving to be quite destructive of all the values that would sustain us individually and collectively. But the other thing that really caught my attention was the idea of the virus implanted. Um, Robert Moore, remember him? Really? Yes. Yeah. One of the first writers about the archetypal model. He pointed out, we are souped up chimpanzees. And I love that expression. What he meant by that was that we carry the genetic material of chimpanzees. We are 98.8% genetically identical to chimpanzees. Mm. And those who've studied chimpanzees with an authentic eye report that they are quite aggressive, self-interested, will kill for food, do not respect members of other tribes, will fight if they meet, particularly if resources are short, will deprive others genetically related to each to themselves of food in the pursuit of survival if food is short. And generally, this sort of illusion that we might have that they're kind of nice animals that live peacefully together 
in a in a gentle habitat turns out to be the exact opposite of the truth which leads me to think that virus of which you spoke a moment ago is nothing more than the selfish gene that makes us who we are the genetic code that makes us who we are which is by nature competitive aggressive not necessarily that altruistic even to members of who are the family who are genetically related to us um, and in the end self-interested purely for the sake of survival so then if that's true the question becomes how does each one of us who cares about that put our humanity before our biological nature which is kind of like the most fundamental question of all how can we come to be compassionate loving individuals who can see what's good for us good for our family and relations and good for the planet well it's a tricky question first i think one has to want to do those things and i'm not sure a lot of people necessarily do but second i think you have to work at it and the way that i understand that is possible is to step more and more into that part of yourself that's the fully conscious fully individuated fully developed human being within us and how you're going to do that by taking an interest in who you are and how you're developing and more particularly perhaps what you want to be and what you want to do in the world mm, thank you rod yeah and it's something i want to delve into now and for the next show it's probably one of the key components of your work is this archetypal model as mm. you touched upon there that leadership that sovereign or king um which i think from our discussions in the past has maybe been lost in many men that, that ability to guide well and guide healthily person a man through their lives has perhaps been lost in life so rod if you want to kind of talk into that i know archetypes your particular yeah, special too. ingredient <laughs> did, <laughs> did you ever have a mentor jonathan did you ever have a mentor i've really not I've, people have strangely enough people that inspired me were footballers i was very into football ian wright yeah. and dennis Bergkamp in the mm. 90s and after that i did not and that's on a, that's on a global level in terms of my personal day-to-day -day life I did not know there was no real no a sh totally strong father figure um, or no real mentor to see me into a healthy adulthood well it's a really interesting one because i only understood it when it happened to me and i didn't seek out mentoring i was when i was working for the company i referred to right at the start of our conversation the manager who recruited me um was a very compassionate individual indeed uh, but you know he was also very direct and very clear about what was required and what was needed and what was expected i didn't understand anything about mentoring at the time and we never entered into any kind of formal mentoring relationship it was only until it was only after he left the company that i realized what he'd been providing for me in terms of safety security guidance support nurturing intellectually and within the company's culture subtly done but fully present all the time to what was going on and attentive to what needed to be adjusted but doing it in a beautiful heart-centered way it was only when he left the company and his replacement took over that i just thought something's changed around here and this now doesn't feel very good at all it feels tyrannical certainly autocratical autocratic rather possibly mm. tyrannical intolerant unforgiving unsupportive 
And I worked out that this previous experience with the previous manager had been mentoring in its finest form. And recently, when I was thinking about this again, for some reason, it did occur to me, what if every man and every woman were brought up by a parent who could provide that level of constant, consistent, nurturing, heart-centered support? How mm. differently would we grow up as individuals? And so therein lies the question for me, if we have not had that level of support, how are we to find it in adult life? Well, the first thing is, I would say every man, possibly every woman, but certainly every man, because of the way we are designed as men, needs to find a group of supportive, like-minded men that he can sit with once a week, once every two weeks, and just open his heart to with complete confidence that men will respect that so that he can be immersed in something that feels warm and supportive and nurturing and get a reflection of what he's doing and how he's being in the world and perhaps even some corrective action. Mm. That's one way to develop the king, the sovereign, the leader up here, definitely. Mm. And the other, of course, is to go on all kinds of trainings and learn about it from people who know something about it. But it's never, in my opinion, it's never going to be the same as it would be if we'd all had good fathering. That's the key to it, good fathering, the bringing up of children in a, in a, and good mothering too, of course, I'm not excluding women from this, you know, bringing children up in that way to develop those confidence in self, confidence in self that actually whatever you have to offer to the world is wanted, that you have a right to exist, that you're valued, that you're worthwhile, that you can make an impact on the world, that you're clever, intelligent, worth listening to, all of those qualities. So there's the king archetype, the queen archetype. Mm. Anything you'd like to just say about that? Yeah, I think um, in terms of my life, I thought there's been a slightly sleepy king. He kind of woke up when I was in my late 20s and started to come back online. Mm. Um, I think the king for me, or the sovereign component, or the sovereign archetype is probably the most important at the minute. It's the real leadership and guidance, and guidance that guides people through life. Uh, and I'm ho only hoping that my own work can help pass on to my daughter in terms of my leadership and the work I've done on myself. And Rod, your work has probably helped dozens, hundreds, thousands maybe of men over the time so they can come back to a healthy fatherhood when they Absolutely. are yeah. fathers. Well, thousands is probably a bit of an exaggeration. <laughs> but how does one ever know the things ripple out into the world? But you are absolutely correct. And just before we move on, it raises the question in my mind of what happened to our fathers? I mean, there'll be men listening to this and women listening to this who said, oh, my father was wonderful. He was absolutely great. Of course, what I'm saying doesn't apply to every single human being on the planet. I think mm. it applies to the majority. Well, Robert Bly said that the first step in the deterioration of relationships between fathers and sons in particular, but it would be true of fathers and daughters as well, is that industrialization happened and men stopped spending time with their children. That men went off to work in the factories and boys lost that connection with both their fathers and what their fathers were doing. And I think that's probably got truth in it. My wife spent a long time working in Africa in 
um, pretty literate societies really, uh, where if your father was a potter, you became a potter um, mm. and so on. But more to the point, the boys spent all their time with their fathers around the older men in the tribe, not just their fathers. So somehow by some mysterious process of infusion, how to be a man in that society just entered into the boys' psyche without any formal training or teaching. They, they just observed what the men did because the men were around all the time. Um, so we've lost that. Then, of course, we had the First World War, the Second World War, Korea, Vietnam, and all the rest of it. And that's no doubt wounded men severely so that they come back unable to be fathers because they've had to cut themselves off from the trauma. And then I think the third thing is that society has evolved in a way that stops men fully embracing masculine qualities. You know, there are, I think, at the moment in society, some forces at work that perhaps unconsciously, perhaps not, seek to de disempower men. I think one way you can recognize that is in the organizations that seek to empower men, which I don't see as necessarily particularly healthy organizations. It's kind of like a toxic energy trying to strip men of masculinity and a toxic energy trying to reattach it to men. But the truth is that true masculinity is powerful, but compassionate and gentle and strikes out with masculine force only when it needs to. So, yeah, we, we, we'd have a few challenges ahead of us, I think. Okay. So there's, there's leadership and the, the king. Then we've got warrior. Now, you know, that's got a bad rap, the word warrior. It's <laughs> like, well, look at what's happening in the Ukraine. Of course, it's got a bad rap. But the thing is, warrior doesn't really mean that. What warrior means is powerful male energy that can go out, get things done, make things happen, if necessary, will defend or even attack, but actually is primarily devoted to, yeah, the energy of being in the world in an assertive way, you know, building things, making things happen, getting things done. It's mm. a very gracious and at its root, most powerful male energy. That Those two, I would say, the sovereign and the warrior, are basically the core axis of masculinity. Um, it's not to say that the others aren't important. I think they are, for a man to be fully masculine, he needs to be powerful in both his sovereign and his warrior. Um, and again, if you prefer more modern terms, heart-centered leader and action taker. Mm. And then we've got lover, you know, and magician. Magician's about thinking. So in a way that's also very necessary, but if it hasn't got a sovereign to control it, it's like the obsessive thinking, waking up at three o'clock in the morning, trying to solve the problems, endlessly going round in rumination and thinking with no outcome. And more to the point, if it hasn't got a sovereign to direct it, it can result in sort of uncontrolled madness really like the building of the atomic bomb. Robert Oppenheimer, he's reputed to have said after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, oh my God, what have I done? Because as he was designing the atomic bomb, the ends justified the means and the ends were designing the atomic bomb full stop, not killing hundreds of thousands of people in a, in a, in a moment. Mm. Um, and the lover, 
well, that's kind of the place where we go in terms of relationship and connection with each other. People think of sex, which is part of it, but it's really about connection. You know, if you have an ability to connect with another human being, then that part of you is strong. And if you don't, it's not so strong. It will find in it its outlet in self-soothing behaviours, addictions mm. primarily. Um, you know, and you, re you referred earlier on, Jonathan, to the easy availability of porn. I mean, dear God, yes, how true. What has that done to men? I hesitate to think, really. Um, but it's certainly done something that's not, in my mind, very positive. It's just made instant gratification very simple and straightforward, as indeed have drugs and drink and gambling and a thousand other addictions, including flicking through social media. Um, but you know when somebody's doing that it's like where's the strong king who can draw the line and say no you just put the drink down put the phone down turn off the porn etc etc so again we come back to that important king sovereign leader energy and just the same for women actually let's call it the queen or the whatever um so any questions that you want to just put up about those very, very brief archetypal sketches. Yeah, a bit of a curious case in point, Rod, it's a, a life actually. Where would you say, if you, if you could, would you sit most, what archetype would you, would you personally sit most comfortably in? Well, I'd like to claim I was learning to sit most comfortably in the king. But, <laughs> <laughs> but um, in fact, as we've already sort of discussed, if you, aren't, if you aren't brought up by a strong role model who can exemplify king energy, you are gonna have a lot of work. Not that it's particularly difficult. It may have to be consistent to step into your king. So let's call that a work in progress. Um, but I think magician energy is strong in me. Um, and the reason for that is because when I was a kid, my environment wasn't necessarily the best in the world. And kids are brought up in difficult, challenging environments usually become very adept at finding strategies to stay safe, to be one step ahead of the challenges they face or the abuser in extreme cases. Mm. That can develop a very defensive mentality where control and certainty and strategies are really important to somebody's perception of their capacity to survive either physically, emotionally, or spiritually. So I think like many people brought up in a world that wasn't ideal, um, I've got quite a strong magician. And that's actually been a great gift because you know there's nothing, it's one of the great assets, let me put it that way. If you're facilitating other people, particularly in group work, having a strong magician is a fantastic asset because in a way, up here can be one step ahead of what's actually happening out in front of you in the group and that's served me very well indeed so i'd like to claim king but i'd probably <laughs> i'd probably have to claim magician really if i'm honest about it thank you for your candor Rod. yes i think i was the same sometimes i feel i drop into lover quite easy i think i'm quite good at relating to people but ultimately mm. i think as a magician maybe for not too dissimilar reasons to you Rod I think I've always been like thoughtful and maybe cunning and trying to think my way through life really until I really got into this work and I started to feel into what what I needed to be doing 
exactly exactly it's a beautiful transition and well done you for making it <laughs> thank you rod um moving on to your kind of your work and what you're hoping for next year rod is there any projects on the horizon anything you're kind of burning to talk about well what i would love to do is put on some more king workshops because mm. my passion now excuse me is really about developing this particular aspect of male and, and women's psychology. Um, I don't really fully understand, probably because I've never thought about it, how it is that my work has evolved to be 90% around men and 10% around women. Um, but perhaps I do need to give that a bit of thought. So I'm not excluding women here at all. I just know there are other places like Celebration of Being in the UK where women mm -hmm. can go to get the same kind of nurture and support. And there's, there are organisations in the UK where men can kind of find something of that quality. But I'm not sure that I see workshops that are specifically designed to develop the King energy. So this is my current line of thinking. I have done them in the past with the help of Diermott Fitzpatrick and Ed Rook. Um, Diermott's now retired and Ed is very much into the world of Tantra these days. He's working mm. with Jan Day on living Tantra. So um, this means almost reconfiguring it from start. If I were to run a sovereign workshop, what would it look like? Who would I have with me as co-facilitators? And so on and so forth. So right now, that's the objective, just in the very early stages of planning it and building on what's gone before um, and thinking how that might look in the future. Um, and I'm, I think I'm driven by that sense, I wouldn't, I was thinking of the right word, sense of, and the word that came to mind was desperation. Now, I don't feel desperate. What I mean is I have a desperate need mm. to propagate the idea of sovereignty and kingship amongst men, because I think that is not only a route to improving the quality of society and community, but I think it's a route very much to improving men's individual quality of life, frankly. Mm. The, the, you know, they can feel that sense of, self-worth and confidence and power and presence and they see it reflected in their relationships with women and children particularly um, and perhaps you know if you're in a position of leadership with the people that you're leading so yes there we are sovereign workshops to help men more fully experience the king archetype within them that's my okay. current passion Thank you, Rod. So stay tuned. I'll put Rod's details uh, at the ends of this episode and on the description link as well. Um, well, personal questions, Rod, I'd uh, written down here. What would you say your key values are as a person? Oh, well, I think integrity, um, authenticity. You know, I when I look back on my life, I smile a lot um, because I can see many, many places in my life where I just was not being the person that I really was. I was putting on some kind of performance or act or front, if you like, for one reason or another. Mm. Certainly didn't work too well when I tried to be an accountant, <laughs> multinational corporation. I can't imagine, despite having a strong magician, you know, it's like that was the worst job I could ever have had in terms of what I really wanted to do. Mm. Um, Sorry, what was the question again? Yeah, I think, what, are your, think, 
What, think, what of my, think of my employers as just blowing the question out of my mind. <laughs> uh, corporate world, I know. Well, yes, right. Uh, the question was, what are your key values? Key values. Person? So authenticity, being who you truly are and presenting that to the world without fear or favour. Yes. Mm. Um, integrity, as in keeping commitments, doing what you say you're going to do, Taking responsibility for sure, no question about that. Taking responsibility for the consequences of my actions insofar as I'm able. Um, being compassionate and loving, but not at the expense of self. Um, I learned about, a lot about that recently when I was in hospital for a, a week or so. And with something pretty serious that came out of the blue. And every single person I met in that hospital, from the cleaners right through to the surgeons, were truly in a heart-centered space, or at least it looked that way to me. You know, this was an atmosphere that I'd never experienced before. Mm. Compassion, love, support, care, universally, it seemed to me. And I was thinking, and I'm still thinking, what would it be like if each and every one of us could cultivate that level of care and compassion for everyone around us? How would that change things? So that's a work in progress, I'll admit that. There's a few edges to me that don't match into that description. Sure. <laughs> but you get what I'm saying. It's like relationship is everything. And you can only have great relationships if you start from a place of caring about people. And I suppose in a way, integrity and authenticity and taking responsibility about caring about other people as well as caring about yourself. Yeah. Hmm. Thank you, Rod. Yeah, it almost preempted one of my questions. Uh, the next question was, if you had a magic wand to change the world in a way you see fit, what would that change be? It's mm, a great question. I would want every person to have the opportunity to learn about the quality of the king or queen within them and to have a to develop a daily practice of embodying that energy even if only for a few minutes every single day of their lives mm. and why is that because when you embody it which you can do with some pretty straightforward shadow work type techniques everything changes in an instant. It's not like this is some theoretical notion. It's just on the other side of a very thin veil of consciousness, just waiting for us to step across into it and just embody it fully. And then, my goodness, the world looks like a different place. Thank you, Rod. I guess my final question is uh, probably just expand on the previous answer you've given. What's your message to the world, if you had a message? Um, Great question. I think one very practical question is, one very practical piece of advice, perhaps is a better way of putting it. If you feel an urge towards self-development work of any kind, just go and do it. Don't allow yourself to be so scared by possibilities that you avoid the opportunity for the expansion of self. Even if it's something really small, just doing something that you've never done before, maybe joining a men's group or a women's group or finding 
a place where you can go and sort of engage in spiritual practice right through to full-blown therapy if there's anything inside you that's moving you in that direction just go ahead and take the risk just do it see what happens see what you can discover about yourself that you didn't already know what have you got to lose what have you got to lose yeah absolutely you've got everything to gain that's the truth of it mm. everything that you don't already know about yourself you've got all of that to gain all of those wonderful qualities that you put into shadow and that you need to reclaim to be fully who you were always meant to be what an irony jonathan <laughs> you got to do the work to become who you were always meant to be mm. well maybe in future generations it won't be much less work or no work let's hope so who wouldn't knows? that be a wonderful world yeah <laughs> okay i think that's a great place to end rod uh final question rod if someone wanted to check you out or find you online following this interview um where can they find you I would, I would welcome, obviously, I would welcome people buying and reading my book. <laughs> but if you want to just provide a web address, that's, a, <clears throat> excuse me, that's a much cheaper alternative for people. Yeah. Not, not, <laughs> but, not that the book's expensive, let me quickly add. Um, anyway, the book probably is worth reading, not just because it tells you more about shadow work, but because it tells you all about archetypal um, energies and what they can do for you and how you can control them and so on and so forth yeah i can give it a flutter, thorough recommendation to rod's book i'd love it i've read it about three times now it's how i came to first start meet you or know you rod and then work with you um, and for men in your life if you're looking for a, a level up to use such a superficial term um, or at least to go deeper with yourself i can definitely re recommend rod's book and for women with men in your life i can recommend it as well mm, thank you appreciate it Okay, thank you, Rod. Lovely speaking. Wonderful to catch up. And we'll see you later. Lovely. See you soon. Be well. Thank you. Bye.